Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. My guest in the studio today is Victor Deal. He is the Director of Contracts and Grants at the University's Space Research Association, a nonprofit organization that advances space-related science and technology. Before that, he was the Acquisition Innovation Advocate for the Department of Defense, where he led many Pentagon initiatives to reform contracting and engage non-traditional vendors. Victor Deal, thank you for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Eric, thanks for having me. I, uh, and I thank uh, you and George Mason University for hosting this event. Well, thanks for coming in. To start us off, could you give us an overview of the contracting process from requirements to award? Where do commercial solutions openings, or CSOs, fit into that? The, the core of the acquisition process is to start with a need, a mission need. And ultimately, the contracting function's job is to deliver on that promise. And that means to bring whatever the customer needs and deliver it to their hands. And so um, I don't want to get into the, the details of the acquisition process, but it is a profession that takes you know, time and uh, years of study to uh, build a certain level of acumen. And um, it has gone through a lot of change. In the mid-90s, when the Congress passed the Defense Acquisition Work Improvement Act, the contracting function was not uh, treated as a profession, and since then it's come a very long ways. And as I look at you know acquisition reform today, there has been a lot of improvement in how we've done business, but at the same time there's also this uh, sense that perhaps the contracting workforce uh, is not the right um, individual to be leading the business transactions. And that's really one of the major pivot points uh, that is being played out today in the acquisition workforce, whether other transactions authority should be uh, led by contracting officers who have a warrant as an agreements officer or for something entirely new to be created. But the idea is that the uh, acquisitions process is not one that should be, uh, that can be picked up easily because as anyone knows who's been in the business, it's very complicated. There are a lot of moving parts, and because oftentimes, especially for the uh, Department of Defense, lives are at risk, you want to make sure that any move you make is one that has been measured twice so that you cut once. And it's, it's this tension between knowing when to move fast and when to move slow and when to be measured in your approach is very relevant to um, how acquisition reform will shape out over the next coming years. So the long answer to your question about process, um, but I wanted to make sure I highlighted that uh, the process is not so important and it should take a backseat to the role of people in the process. So. Great. Yeah, I think that will be a theme that will be coming out on this podcast over a number of episodes that you kind of want to organize around your best people and then and then let them do great things. You don't just command innovation and just have people go do it. 
so one thing you hear in the news quite often are commercial solutions openings and other transactions authorities. Can you tell us a little bit about the difference between two of those things? That's been something that's confused me for a little bit. Sure, will do. <clears throat> first, the other transactions authority, let me first say what they are before I go into the differences. The other transactions authority is a really old authority that was initially granted to NASA and eventually brought over to the Department of Defense that allowed the federal agencies and departments to circumvent a lot of the acquisition rules. In the uh, 50s and 60s, it became very clear for NASA that in order to engage certain companies, they had to limit the amount of regulation that applied. And so um, this, this authority has proliferated, and many more people are interested in finding new ways to reach out to industry uh, in order to get their technology. Commercial solutions opening, on the other hand, um, is agnostic as to whether it's a other transaction agreement or it's a, uh, a federal acquisition regulation-based uh, procurement contract. It's really the concept of how real businesses work, where if you are um, in industry and you have a, a technology, you don't care uh, where necessarily that technology goes, you know, who the customer is, and who you partner with in order to improve that technology. And uh, the customer, uh, which is the, the government in this case, can use uh, commercial solutions opening business concept to uh, basically act as a venture capital firm who can look around at all the technologies and regardless of the phase of where the technology is, to be able to bring on board the right add-on technologies to um, their programs. And so in one case, an OTA basically you know, throws out all the rules and regulations and allows practitioners to really think about what they really care about in order to make the business deal happen. And a CSO is just a solicitation approach that allows new entrants to come and go uh, at any phase of the project. So you've described the defense contract process as linear. What makes it linear? And how do CSOs create a nonlinear option for the government? So traditionally, under a FAR-based procurement contract, the process begins with a requirement and ends with delivery of a good or service. Um, when you think of any process, there's a beginning and then there's an end. But going back to how businesses really operate, the differences are not so distinct. And when uh, Secretary Carter, he asked for new ideas for doing business for the federal government, in this case, Department of Defense, we looked at how we were doing business. Uh, we looked at the research and development organizations. We looked at the more procurement-based organizations. And we found that the idea that most resonated to solve the problem of being able to move faster and mimic industry and to adopt commercial technologies in a modular way, uh, the most um, ap applicable approach was through the broad agency announcements and how, uh, it, at the time it was limited, BAAs are only limited to the very early stages of R&D, 
And so the idea was what if we took this kernel of a concept and brought it out so that no matter where you are in the process, from the early uh, material solutions analysis, looking for alternatives, uh, and doing a alternatives of analysis, uh, analysis of alternatives, or you are in sustainment, how could we, how could you know the federal government bring on new technologies without having the inability to unsaddle itself from a path that not that may not necessarily be a good path to you know ultimately uh, end on, and so the idea is instead of being linear, instead if the acquisition model uh, mimicked what was going on in the engineering world of modularity and the technologies or the concepts exploration process was chunked into smaller bites, then uh, maybe uh, we would have a better chance in reaching out to industry to bring them on board to bring those new technologies. Um, In many ways, the proliferation of other transactions authority and commercial solutions openings is a acknowledgement of a capitulation where the federal government you know admits it no longer is the major decision maker in the direction of research and development and instead since industry since the 60s 70s and 80s have started to invest more of their own private funds into the direction of technology, the federal government, in you know, in pursuing and advocating for uh, OTAs and CSOs, they're now coming to the table, you know, ready to do business more like how industry does. So, in order to kind of facilitate, bring some more of the contractors to the table earlier, quicker, um, get some of their ideas. Acquisition Chief Ellen Lord kind of has looked to reduce the time between RFP or request for a proposal to contract award down from two and a half years to one year. And some people talk about getting that time down to two months. Now, for complex weapon systems, how does that sound to you, the one year and the, the two-month mark for, for the time to get uh, a contract award out? From a technology standpoint, any decision to buy something is always going to be based upon how mature that technology is. And while I was a part of uh, the Department of Defense, we spent a lot of time looking at different programs and analyzing the the time it takes to shorten uh, the time frame from solicitation to award. Um, And that does not include the two years or three years prior to that in terms of creating the requirements. Um, and securing the funding, and then having an acquisition team who's at the end of the process to execute the business transaction. Uh, so going from two and a half to one year um, really uh, comes down to um, understanding what you're buying. And if what you're buying is not a high-risk technology, and the risk, you know, the, the, the technology readiness level is at a much higher confidence level, then shortening the acquisition time will clearly be a benefit because you should have something that is uh, at least a prototype for you to evaluate to make a decision as to whether you want to take it further. But for a lot of the programs, um, like my experience with GPS, it takes a long time to get 
the technology right. And oftentimes DOD reaches far into the future so that when they do bring something online, it is significantly superior to what is around today. And if you change that paradigm and you're looking for incremental advantage, then the acquisition process could surely benefit from having a shorter time frame because once you make an award, you should have more confidence in what you're buying versus a very tortured, long evaluation process that brings in many experts from many functional career fields to determine you know, which technology on paper is going to be able to be delivered within you know, the limited time frame that uh, they're given to um, produce the technology. So why are companies always under threat of being replaced in a CSO? So, uh, so the commercial solutions opening, when you compare it to your prior question about weapon systems and then this idea of really creating a marketplace where technologies can come and go and incumbents aren't guaranteed that they'll continue through the next increment because there are so many competitors uh, within the space. But when you compare it to like weapon systems, um, you really come down to a very small number of companies that can manage a billion dollars. And CSOs will likely not be an appropriate solicitation method for something so large. Um, but a CSO would be very appropriate for the things that hang off that technology. So if you were to procure a rocket, that rocket itself would likely be a two-and-a-half, one-year evaluation process. Uh, there are ways to shorten it, but then at the same time, uh, you increase the level of risk depending on the level of maturity. But using a CSO, there are things you can do that surround that major platform that you can increase the cycle time for your acquisitions so that as new technology and incremental improvements are devised, you can swap companies, the, the wares that they're selling out much faster. In the past, the analogy I used is like an app where everyone who has a personal cell phone can look at their, um, you know, go to the Apple store or the Google store and download an app. And each consumer makes a decision as to whether they want to buy the premium version of the app, whether they want to scale that app so that you know they share it with their friends and and others can use it you know whether the two have access to other features on their phone there's a lot of personal decisions that can, people have using their app and the federal government really doesn't have a method to offboard onboard new companies and new technologies in a similar way and so a CSO you know conceivably can be used to you know establish a technology perch, and each uh, company uh, who is in that space can constantly compete to one-up the other, and ideally should have a common baseline that they all are based on with some unique proprietary aspects that make uh, their secret sauce, and if someone else comes up with something better, then the federal government can just swap one after the other, hence why it's always hyper-competitive. So CSOs were ideally created for acquisitions of less than $10 million. The Congress have authorized up to $100 million. And uh, there are a lot, I mean, that opens up a wide variety of technologies that can be pursued. It also opens up new forms of business models, whereas uh, in the past, there have always been consortiums. 
but with a hundred million dollar CSO, an organization can stand up an ecosystem of various technologies and the consortium can manage the development and the path of many different technologies so that when these technologies are ripe, the consortium can then offer them to its customer, the federal government. And um, it's another way of increasing competition on the, is another way of increasing competition by using CSOs. This sounds to me a little bit like the kind of platform methodology going on in Silicon Valley. So when you said CSOs are not probably correct uh, vehicle for a major weapon system, I'm kind of thinking like, well, okay, so CSOs might not be the best vehicle for a major platform like uh, the ship system or the aircraft uh, airframe system itself. But then CSOs might do very well to be able to provide applications, different components that rapidly upgrade that, that platform and bring in some non-traditional vendors. Do you care to comment on the platform and how that kind of is seen in the Department of Defense versus kind of Silicon Valley? No, that seems to say, uh, I mean, that completely gels with what I had envisioned for how CSOs would be used. Because there are some things that the uh, private industry is just not going to develop. They're not going to go out on the limb, and at least not many companies, not enough to be, you know, uh, significantly competitive with, uh, you know, 10, 50 different bidders um, are going to come out with a brand new aircraft that's a billion dollars each, right? Normally, um, you know, the invention of all the major technologies that DOD has funded from the internet, the microwave, uh, all these technologies, there may not be a immediate commercial application. And so you always need the federal government to have a process that's fair, that's transparent, that may be linear, that pushes the boundaries of the technology frontier. But at the same time, as technology has become more complicated, it's never just one thing. It's not. It's never just I invented the microwave. It's I invented, um, you know, the the microwave is now just a piece of a weapon system. <laughs> it's 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 the the technology is so complicated that there are ten, fifteen, twenty different novel uh, solutions on board one ship, and uh, you know a CSO is a method of capitalizing on uh, the speed of technology and bringing them to that major platform that otherwise would never be invented. So yes, you're you're cross-referencing how Silicon Valley and this direction the Department of Defense is going is, I I would wholly agree agree that it's in sync with that concept. So... I think a lot of the Silicon Valley firms, like Amazon Web Service, for example, they don't go out and uh, create requirements and solicit new applications. There's a lot more of the time is kind of open for smaller firms to kind of come in and create these new applications on top of their platform. Uh, what do you think is the future of unsolicited proposals? Do you think that has a role in the uh, Department of Defense to a greater degree than it's used now? Or do you think the RFI, RFP, to the source selection, that kind of process is where we should be at. Hmm. So unsolicited proposals are very rare. And partly it's because when companies submit a proposal that has not been solicited, they take a major risk. Um, One, 
when they uh, they approach a customer um, with an idea, they don't know what the customer is necessarily going to do with it, and it takes a lot of time. Being a part of industry, you know, the better way is to remove unpredictability. And so, <clears throat> the RFI process, though, the failure to that side is the government may not always know what it wants. So if it issues a solicitation, you know, it's going to put out a statement of objectives or a statement of work, and it will either be, uh, it would have a lot of details or maybe it doesn't have enough details, and it leaves much um, trade space that's really not quite yet known. Using CSOs, though, is, uh, in my opinion, a better approach because it follows more of the market system where there are different companies out there who are doing what they do best. They create new technologies. And instead of approaching one customer and saying, this is what I have, or for the government saying, this is kind of what I have in mind, can you do it? Both sides can uh, independently, through a CSO, decide uh, so through a CSO, let me, let me go back and explain a little bit of the process. The first step of a CSO is the federal government just announcing different interest areas in technology. Some of the CSOs I've seen have had 20, 30, 50 different technologies that they're pursuing. And first stage is for industry to submit a white paper. And in this white paper, someone on the government side will quickly look at this one two-page white paper that says this is what my technology is. And, and the government will take a very... A brief look at it and make a determination to send back a letter that says we're interested or not interested and if the federal government is interested then uh, they will invite that company in for a pitch and at the pitch session it will be an opportunity for the technical leads on both sides to sit down and basically drill into what that technology is and then afterwards they go into negotiations and formulate all the terms and conditions that are acceptable to both sides and then you have yourself a contract, either an other transactions authority or a FAR procurement contract. Now, your question of what is the ideal you know, way, whether you know, unsolicited proposals on the industry side or for the government to send out an RFI and a solicitation, which is the better way? The, the, if the CSOs are used and they continue to proliferate, then um, both questions become moot. Because by the federal government issuing a demand indicator, the right companies will know who in the federal government they need to go to who owns this particular space. And that reduces so much friction. And the more friction you take out of the system where you're basically searching for a customer that may or may not exist and you won't know and you spend time and bid and proposal funds to pursue what you think is the right client, but ultimately may or may not be. Um, but if you're using CSOs, it removes the friction so that the industry member knows exactly who is interested. And then if the potential client is interested in that technology, then they will have the, uh, the meeting uh, to continue the conversation from there. And so this approach obviates the use of RFIs or solicitations because um, instead of both sides being inefficient in describing what they had to sell or what they want to buy, the two can marry up and work on what they want to build together in a more efficient way. And so CSOs is uh, you know a, a way that you know 
the ideal form of business is partnerships as opposed to a silo relationship. And the more, you know, especially when it comes to very high-end technologies where no one knows if it will pan out or not, and one side is selling and one side, uh, you know, is, is buying into that sales pitch. Um, but by working together, both sides can have some stake in the outcome. And that, and that ultimately reduces a lot of the friction and a lot of the, ex, you know, high costs that is normal to government contracting. So that's something that was pretty interesting there, that relationships are key to, to a lot of these business arrangements. What is the role of trust in contracting, in culture and acquisition more generally? Uh, so the ideal form of contracts is one based only on trust, where there is no written document. Other transactions authority gets you the, probably the closest, because as opposed to having all these rules in place and prearranged you know, positions, other transactions authority leaves a lot to be negotiated. In fact, you start with a uh, tabula rasa. You start with a blank slate. And the only way for these types of agreements to work is to have a high degree of trust between parties. The reason why the Federal Acquisition Regulation is such a uh, massive book is because of all the lessons learned for when certain aspects of an agreement are not articulated. And so over time, it adds all these barnacles that really are lessons learned. Um, and so if you have no trust, then you have the far end of the spectrum, which is massive regulation. And if there is a high degree of trust, then you have a handshake. And so what I hope to see uh, more of is you know, cross-fertilization between those who are in government and those who are in industry, um, you know, building an understanding as to achieving the common goal. In national defense, it's for national security. And if uh, you know, the entities bear in mind their own interests as a uh, you know, private entity in the government, but also keep in mind, ultimately, the bigger picture, trust forms. And uh, you can work through the bumps in the road much easier. So trust is, is key, ultimately, to this idea of acquisition reform. And without it, uh, nothing will really change. In culture, culture is one of the hardest aspects of any workforce to change. You, you know, you often walk into a uh, organization and you inherit the people who are there, and um, culture doesn't change overnight. But it's important to honor and respect different cultures because ultimately, at the end of the day, it's the people who are doing the work and not a process. And so, you know, as people think about acquisition reform, um, which has been, you know, the, a byword for the past 50 years, the preferred word, I think, is acquisition improvement. Uh, this ideal of incremental change over time in order to navigate to what we hope will be a higher plane. But the culture you know, as an organization sticks around for long enough, it becomes an institution. And this idea of acquisition improvement shouldn't forget that the institution is made up of, of people who have for a long time, and who are, by the way, highly qualified, highly intelligent, are operating within a structure 
that they didn't themselves create and have tried to optimize the right path over time. And so uh, as people think about acquisition improvement, I would also hope that they do not forget you know, that, you know, that those who have come before them uh, didn't have great ideas or um, you know, wasn't in a position to uh, make the right decisions. It's, it's a journey. And so you know, with each new generation that comes into acquisitions, you know, it's a complicated business. And having a healthy dose of what came before and understanding the pitfalls uh, ensures that the new generation does not make the same mistakes, which is why uh, when I saw your website and read through all the articles you've, you've posted and looking back over the past 50 years and all the different acquisition initiatives, it was uh, you know, very heartening to see that your respect for the institution. And um, not that there's any answers that anyone today can formulate that is going to be the silver bullet to improving how, how acquisitions work, but it starts by understanding what came before and taking the best out of that and uh, you know, making the um, adaptations that need, to, that need to occur in order to uh, improve. Yeah, we in the DOD like to uh, rely on quantitative data, but these big institutional problems, I agree with you, they are kind of historical problems and, and, and somewhat a little bit different to kind of understand. And these culture aspects, you know, even the same rules uh, in the Department of Defense with different cultures could manifest very differently. So some of these other transactions authorities, they kind of require being work based on prototyping or innovation. And you said something really interesting about that, that innovation depends on the comptroller's interpretation. You said a brick could be considered a prototype. What do you mean by that? <laughs> so I had in the past... Um, had a conversation with a colleague, and uh, we were looking at how to define prototype. And uh, this was a fundamental hang-up in the past because people read it very, very narrowly. And so uh, when we came out with the word, uh, you know, we came out with a new definition for innovation. And uh, the definition for innovation, we expanded to include concepts and processes. And these are things you can't necessarily touch. And so that extends over into, you know, prototype. And if you're holding a brick, everyone knows conceptually what a brick is. But if you're really trying to drive innovation and you're holding this brick and you find a new way, a new use for it, then that same brick can become a, uh, you know, a new innovative device. I imagine, you know, thousands of uh, years ago, before people uh, harvested oil from the earth, they may have used it, you know, for heating, perhaps. But if you look at today and all the pharmaceutical drugs and all the different uh, uh, technologies and um, breakthroughs that have been developed from something as simple as oil that just sits in the earth and has been there for a very long time, um, these simple commodities, uh, when viewed from a different perspective in themselves, can become a prototype. Um, it's this idea of innovation not being just something I can touch, but it's a new process, a new concept. It's far-reaching, um, and, and it's that kind of flexibility. You know, this, 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 that particular conversation, um, I think, you know, demonstrates the kind of flexibility for which, um, at my, during my time, many within the Department of Defense were moving toward. So back in 2013, 
Other transactions authorities amounted to about $200 million worth of obligations. And by 2017, that number grew to $2 billion. And it seems that it's still on the way up, but that's only about 2% of the research and development test and evaluation appropriation. So what do you think is the biggest barrier to scaling OTAs and CSOs to more of the acquisition dollars? And why does it seem like these are more like workarounds as opposed to just attacking the FAR directly? So whenever a new acquisition authority, you know, is, is, is supported, I wouldn't say it's other OTAs are a very old authority. It just hasn't been in vogue. And yes, in 2013, it was just one organization out there. Uh, there were a couple of organizations, but definitely just a handful of organizations out there. One pri- primarily did the majority of of that $200 million. But they were very small and um, insular organizations that found it and embraced it and have inc- you know incubated it along the way. And they definitely deserve a medal for keeping at it. Now, the, the question of you know, how far, how pervasive should OTAs be across the federal government and, you know, in particular the Department of Defense? The question, you know, deserves some nuance. Or the answer deserves some nuance. And um, for some things, it would probably be inappropriate to do a OTA where your baseline for negotiations is a blank sheet of paper. I would like to see OTAs to be considered whenever anything innovative is being developed. And the, uh, the example I like to uh, communicate is that if I'm working at the uh, defense commissary and I'm buying ketchup, then a procurement contract is the appropriate tool because um, it's a commodity. But if you're buying something like a autonomous machine that can move stuff around within the logistics warehouse of that same commissary, a FAR-based contract may not be the appropriate tool. And so something as common, you know, so an organization that has a very well-understood mission may want to bring aboard new technologies. And that's when OTAs would be an appropriate tool. So I would never advocate the you know, demolition of all the lessons learned, all the case law that, that created today's regulations. Um, there's definitely a time and place for that. But um, at the same time, the use of OTAs is an acknowledgement that in order to grasp the new technologies, business as usual um, will likely continue to give us the same results. And the Department of Defense won't move as fast had they otherwise changed how they did business. For other transactions authorities, are they exempted from other types of regulations like the 5000.02 for earned value management or cost and software reporting? What's the rule around this? So other transactions authorities are exempt from many of the, of the rules that apply, the laws that apply to procurement contracts, but they're not exempt from all laws. And it becomes, it's very complicated. You know, those who receive the warrant to be an agreements officer should have uh, some appreciation for the you know, business law, legislation, just generally around the space. Because um, 
you know, one example is that the federal, the Department of Defense uses um, the, the Department of Defense Instruction 5001 and 5002, which is a regulation um, it created in order to manage, you know, the major defense acquisition programs. And programs that hit that threshold, the dollar threshold, even if they're an O, the transaction authority, they're not exempt from the DODI 5001 and 2 regime. They are very much still have to comply with it. Now, Congress passed uh, in this last in National Defense Authorization Act a new authority that al allows the Department of Defense program managers to bypass the um, regulation within DOD. And that's, that's you know, now being planned and tested out, uh, last I checked. But the, the, the specific thing is in OTAs and all the laws that are out there, it's a very complicated body of knowledge. And you know, it takes quite a bit of savvy to detangle what's applicable when and why, and which, takes, which legislation or regulation takes precedence or not, or where are the caveats. And so in general, it's a blank slate. But laws change all the time, and uh, interpretations uh, also change. Um, some things, though, never change, like fiscal law. Fiscal law, because you're using federal funds, still apply. Um, so, For proposal evaluation, what's the difference between best value and merit methods? And why do you not necessarily need to look at cost realism? Okay. So the, the uh, so let me. Most people in acquisitions, when they think of any kind of um, evaluation, they start from lowest price technically acceptable to best value trade off. It's only in the world of research and development is this idea of a merit based selection. So if you imagine, previously the paradigm was, I will either buy a technology based upon the lowest price technically acceptable, which seems anathema to this idea of cutting-edge technology, the lowest priced yet the most cutting-edge technology. And then on the other end, I'm going to do a best value trade-off, which means I find two different companies and I'm going to adjudicate which one is better. But the problem is it's research and development and no one knows what will actually pan out to be the better technology. So it's a guess. You do a best value trade-off and you make a guess, your best guess, and you go forward. But this idea of merit-based is, I've already seen what you have, right? I already see I'm further along in my confidence in your technology. And when I've opened up a solicitation that is a commercial solutions opening, and I open up this, this approach to the world, I've received all the different ideas that are out there. And I'm making a determination upon what I believe to be the most innovative technology that meets the warfighter's needs. And based upon the evaluation of a panel of experts in that field, this idea of merit now takes away from the evaluation of cost as a factor. Because, again, much like venture capital firms who are looking at new technologies, they value companies not based upon the current revenue streams of today, but on what they hope that revenue stream will be in the future. Now, for the Department of Defense, they're not evaluating revenue streams. They're looking for capability, lethality, uh, efficiency, um, 
something that's better tomorrow than it is today. And um, to try to pin a dollar value on paper for a technology that hasn't yet been delivered makes it really difficult to pin a cost realism number on it. Hence why the merit-based approach says, I'm not even going to pretend I know the cost. I'm going to base upon the best merit. And when the merit changes, because we live in a dynamic world with new technologies coming aboard every day and maturing, um, I'm going to pass the merit baton to the next idea. And so evaluating uh, based upon cost realism you know, is just as nonsensical as when um, for a IDIQ contract, uh, contractors have in the past, uh, not so much now because that's been fixed, um, in the past had to submit pricing and then later on each task order they would have to submit new pricing. And so the pricing they get into the gate in order to determine cost realism had no basis for its relevance in the next phase. So um, it, it creates this uh, perverse incentives of um, either overinflating or underinflating the, uh, the the cost, um, and it depends on what side you're on. You know, one side benefits the other. So a merit-based evaluation is based on this concept of purely merit, and it's not a trade-off. Uh, you're picking the winner, and you know because this is so important and it's clearly innovative over the current solutions that are out there, um, the merit is, uh, you know, you pick the winner. Yeah, I've always had this uh, idea that, you know, as intangibles, what you're talking about here, the software, the platform design, the R&D, the ideas, um, as this becomes more important in the economy, weapon systems acquisition decisions actually kind of look a little bit like VC decisions in that respect. You're not really looking at revenue streams where the tangible assets that are backing this. You're looking at the ideas and the promise for the future. With respect to the merit-based evaluation, it reminds me of a story from the F-18 development when McDonnell Douglas, they had a very challenging requirement to fit a very small radar in the nose of the, uh, of the aircraft. And when McDonnell Douglas went out to do their source selection for the radar, they did exactly what you said there. They didn't look for the lowest price. They actually found the one that had the best merit for achieving the technically challenging requirements that they had. And it was actually the highest price, right? And they were able to deliver that radar on time and on cost, and it, and it performed. So this seems to be an issue in the Department of Defense where we like to determine what the price is based on quote-unquote, fair and reasonable. What is fair and reasonable for the government to pay? And a lot of times we think of that as, well, what was the cost of production, right? Let me go into your uh, accounting system and let me audit what were the labor expenditures, what was the overhead allocation, what were the material charges, right? So in the world of R&D, you get back into this merit-based approach. So can the price be whatever you're willing to pay for it? when that is really kind of a subjective notion and the government really needs to be accountable by these objective methods? I, I would hope that uh, whenever someone looks at buying something, they spend time to look at the alternatives. Because at the end of the day, when you see one technology, there's always a complementary or a counter technology to it. And... Um, 
the value of anything is really relative to something else. So one example, and and I'll give two examples. The first example is if I have a tank, and in that tank there's a screw, and without that screw, that tank will not operate. Well, then the value of that screw depends on um, can you find it out in the open market. And if that particular screw is uh, made of a particular material that is um, fairly unique um, and exotic, then you know maybe there's a premium to it. But what then would be considered a fair and reasonable price? And if you need this tank and there is nothing else that is like a tank, then the value of that screw continues to climb until, you know, conceivably, it is the value of that tank. And if you don't have, you know, I think this is the the situation you find yourselves um, with uh, the F-35 fighter. It is a very expensive plane, but its capabilities have, you know, have to be out of this world in order to spend a trillion dollars. But the question that has been asked is, what is the alternative? And if you are looking at trying to price something and you do not know whether the capability will pan out, then the price would seem, you know, ridiculously high. And I think this is what you find, uh, you know, you mentioned the venture capital firms out there who are pricing technologies. They don't necessarily know what will happen tomorrow, but they do know that uh, today this is what they're willing to pay for it. And if they're wrong, then you know, then they, they, they face the consequences of being wrong. And that's just a normal part of business. And so, you know, we, we don't have the perfect foresight as to knowing uh, the value of any technology. But, you know, we hope that when anyone evaluates buying anything, it's based upon some rational basis and not just, you know, that just sounds really high. It's always based upon some alternative. It sounds like what's really coming out of there is that when you look at a price of something, it's really relative to something else. And so that really brings in, for me at least, the idea of competition. But that competition is kind of constrained in the Department of Defense because we have a monopsony, a single buyer. And usually one of the goals of that single buyer is to optimize the portfolio, to not have a lot of redundancy, competing perspectives, or Uh, overlapping programs. So we often hear about statistics on whether there is or is not competition in the Department of Defense based on, well, what percent of contracts were competed through formal advertisement and what percentage were negotiated. There was an analyst in the Army back in 1972. He basically called these statistics simply irrelevant to competition because of the single buyer problem. And You could, for example, have a negotiated contract environment, but if there's many competitors, as you said, offering alternatives, it could bring prices into alignment with uh, efficiency notions. So what do you think about that? So this problem of not having enough competitors really comes down to the two types of problems. One is perhaps the requirements are not being chunked in a way that is... Uh, achievable. I, I spent some time overlooking the uh, services acquisition portfolio, and what had become in vogue was these omnibus services acquisitions, where someone's responsible for four or five different tasks. And in truth, that one prime contractor would award subcontracts to two, three others under it. And so, 
the prime contractor would become the lead integrator. But if those requirements um, were to be broken out, then you would have competition. You would have more vendors out there able to compete for the smaller chunks. There are some efficiencies sometimes when you create an omnibus platform, but sometimes it goes in the opposite direction of increasing competition. So efficiency may not necessarily lead to the same um, benefits as, as competition. Uh, so, the, so again, the first problem is maybe the requirements are too big. The second problem is when we think of competition, oftentimes it's looked at as this is the statement of work, this is a statement of objectives, and everyone who submits a proposal to that is trying to optimize against a single uh, approach versus wild approaches that completely look at different ways of solving the problem. One example is um, uh, you can hire someone, you can put out a statement of work or a statement of objectives that say, uh, go out there and mow the grass. And someone will come, most people would end up hiring a team to go and cut the grass with a lawnmower. But the classic out of the box thinking is to uh, hire a farmer to put a bunch of goats out there and they would naturally, of course, fertilize and mow the grass, which you know is is a different solution than what most people would commonly think of. And if you were to extrapolate that and apply it to just this idea of competition, if you say what you're trying to achieve, what outcome you're trying to achieve, and really allow a variety of different solutions to come in, then I don't foresee competition always being. Uh, the limiting factor, because there really aren't too many problems that have only one solution. And then you have to optimize, of course, what you're willing to pay for that solution. So the Defense Innovation Unit, I believe, is no longer experimental. It was kind of like the initial platform for some of these commercial solutions openings, right? But their guide on some of this process has been pretty sparse in terms of how funding comes through. So it seems that DIU, rather than having their own budget that they're now trying to allocate, they're trying to help customers from the services get their requirements through the contracting process more efficiently. Do you care to comment on that? So there are many business models out there. And you know, DIU, this is the business model that was contemplated and set before them. In this case, they are a facilitator, uh, you know, they they bring industry together with uh, different parts of the federal government and try to reduce the amount of friction on both ends, uh, miscommunication and misunderstanding and lack of knowledge that may occur on both ends. DARPA is another organization that has the their own contracting authority, and uh, they they have their own funding and they do basically you know end to end you know, research and development to prototyping uh, with their own funds. Uh, DIU, uh, to my understanding, recently received their own contracting authority, and so that gives them a little bit more autonomy. And I'm not sure the status of their funding, but if it's still, you know, separate, it's this idea of instead of creating an island, you know, it's to spread this idea across all the different parts of the Department of Defense that could benefit from that. And, you know, oftentimes it's more efficient to put a, a, a pathfinder in place versus trying to, you know, mimic or copy that same capability um, and put, you know, factor of 100 
into every different organization to do that. And so, you know, this may be the, as the Pentagon may have decided that this is the most efficient way in order to get as many organizations on board as they can. One of the things that I think the Defense Innovation Unit is helping to address is this problem that has been called the Valley of Death, which is that time between the transition of technology from the technology labs at places like DARPA and then the program offices where they do the real full-scale development of a system to make it producible, combat-ready, and the like. Can you tell us a little bit about the Valley of Death? What are the challenges here? And what are some of the the paths that the government has taken to resolve that? So the challenge, in my opinion, is that um, when you have an organization that is large, oftentimes creating segments where people specialize is a way of uh, improving the professionalism and efficiency of, uh, you know, achieving the desired outcome. But... But over time, uh, you know, if you try to uh, pursue a large project, um, what becomes more clear is the fact that no one has full accountability for the end-to-end success of that effort. So I understand that the, uh, there's an Undersecretary of Defense for um, Research and Engineering and the Undersecretary of Defense now for Acquisition and Sustainment, and they have different responsibilities and uh, there's a chief management office that kind of facilitates and integrates the two together. And it, it, it's too early to see how it will pan out. But, you know, historically in the past, uh, there had been efforts to segmentize these two disparate parts of the acquisition cycle. Uh, and it has not always uh, achieved the results, hence why uh, the Undersecretary of Defense of Acquisition Technology and Logistics position was created. Um, and now we're reverting back to how it was done in the past. But if you have your technology being run through the process and you have you know, two different uh, chiefs who are overseeing it, it will add definitely new dynamics and complexity and may or may not solve this problem around the valley of death because literally right in between those two organizations through the process is where the valley of death is. And so facilitator that's been appointed to work between them, you know, is not as successful as desired, then it's not clear to me how the problem of the valley of death will be resolved. Back in the 60s and 70s, there were a number of studies that were looking at the acquisition process and they tended to find 20 to 50% of the total acquisition costs went to justification or accountability. These things like cost accounting, auditing, uh, the contract process, and then reporting up to executives, reviews, budget justification, and all that. What does that sound like to you? Do you think it's really that high? It could be 50%? You know, that's a, a squ- very squirrely number to really pin down. You know, in every profession, there's paperwork. Uh, whether it's 20% or 50%, I've never uh, taken a specific look at that. But the, uh, there definitely is a lot of, of analysis that goes into, there's a lot of work that goes into every program before you see a launch or you see a flight. And so I, whether it's appropriate, I think you have to look at the outcome. 
right? Uh, you know, more recent to date experience with, uh, uh, you know, in the space business, right? Now um, you have companies out there that are launching for the first time, and they're they're you know uh, they haven't always been successful, and there's been some cost attributed to that, and I don't necessarily know the reasons as to why they weren't successful, but you look back throughout the history of the Department of Defense and the, um, the, the factor of three to four times for what was paid for the current launches on the new, uh, new entrance, um, they haven't lost a payload. And so when you compare the difference between, it, you know, again, it comes down to what is, relative, what is the relative worth of that paper? Is it you know, success 100% of the time, um, which that paper seemed to have achieved, versus you know, success you know, 90% of the time or some percentage less than that. And you know, that becomes just a, a question as to you know, where you, what you value. Paperwork in itself is not the enemy. It's you know, your tolerance for the risks you're willing to take based upon what you're willing to pay. Well, I think there's a distinction there between research and development, perhaps procurement and operating and support. So, for example, a lot of the venture capital, right, they see at least 50% of their investments kind of fall flat. And then they really kind of are picking out a lot of their returns from the couple guys that get that 100x, 1,000x return, the revolutionary type stuff, the revolutionary ideas. Uh, so in R&D, I kind of see that, well, failure is a precondition to success. Now, when you have R&D articles that are concurrently kind of put into production, and then now you're putting payloads into space on those things, yes, in production, we probably won 100%. But on the R&D side, it feels like 100% and even 90% is a little bit too much. you care to comment on that? So what is your question specifically? <laughs> I guess the question here is, let's just say there's a, a good deal of accountability costs that are being absorbed in the department. And we're saying, well, potentially that's saving us from the downsides of a system not performing, of it failing, and then you're losing that investment cost as well. And then the mission capabilities, uh, you might have a, a failure of the mission. But in research and development, it seems like there's a lot of tacit knowledge involved in, in understanding what is the promise of, of an innovation, what might come of it. So the justification costs, which would largely be explicit accounting data, engineering specs that are still largely untested, right, because it's still R&D. R&D, we're kind of exploring the unknown. R&D is not supposed to produce us necessarily systems for the field. They're supposed to bias information. Uh, on what to buy. So I guess the question there was, well, okay, in a lot of these other transactions, authorities kind of skip around some of the regulation in R&D, reducing some of the justification and transaction costs. Do you think in R&D, potentially, those justification costs should be much lower? And the, the real justification is, show me what you produced, and then we'll think about whether that's good enough for production and to be put into the field. Yes. So the mantra uh, that I first heard coming out of the Air Force was to fail smart and fail fast, mm -hmm. right? And so it, it comes this question of how much do you invest early in the technology development process? And at what point do you pull the plug? And for many small capabilities, fail smart, fail fast, uh, is you know it can be achieved, but 
for really far-reaching capabilities that may not always translate easily. Under the commercial solutions opening, if you follow this idea of a merit-based selection process uh, where contracts can be awarded in as little as 60 days from the initial introduction to the award of the contract, and you look at uh, being able to, you know, replace a solution comparatively much more easier and faster than the traditional norm, then the uh, fail fast, uh, fail smarts, fail fast is something that can be achieved. But it really is just relative to how hard your technology is. And bigger dollar projects tend to come with it, you know, many more complicated parts. Hence why chunking programs into more modular, smaller pieces is um, the direction that uh, much of the federal government's heading. Before we finish up, would you talk a little bit about your career? How did you get started in acquisition, and what projects have you worked on? So my background is, you know, didn't follow a single path. It was quite diverse and uh, totally unpredictable. I started off, uh, I'm an Air Force Academy graduate, served in the Air Force. I um, worked on the GPS uh, program and ultimately became the contracting officer. And uh, in between there, deployed to Iraq and was the uh, deputy chief of contracts for oil uh, out of Baghdad. And then came back, finished up my uh, time with the Air Force in five years and left to work on Wall Street as an investment banker and was there during the 2007-2008 recession and left there to run the operations over at a private logistics company and made my way to D.C. as a official on the American Harvey Accountability and Transparency Board, which was a team of people who was put in charge of overseeing the uh, at, the th- at the time, $787 billion of stimulus spending uh, that went to reinvigorate the economy. And uh, after spending some time there, I left and joined the Pentagon uh, staff within the Office of the Secretary of Defense and took on a variety of different roles, which ultimately the Office of Management and Budget uh, wanted to identify those within each department who were the acquisition innovation advocates. And uh, that, that title ultimately uh, was my last one in the Pentagon. And about uh, a year and a half ago, I left and joined a nonprofit uh, research and development science-based institution um, that is uh, known as Universities Space Research Association and, um, and have basically gone back to industry. So that's a little bit about me and kind of the windy road I took to get to where I am today. Great. Thanks. Can you talk to us a little bit about some cool projects going on at USRA? So uh, over at USRA, it's um, a very unique organization in a sense that as a nonprofit, private uh, entity, it uh, provides highly professional PhD individuals to the federal agencies and primarily NASA. And our projects range from 3D printing to studying ways to use nuclear energy more efficiently to observing the stars far out into the galaxies. We have projects that look at, uh, we have partnerships with Google to work on uh, artificial intelligence, 
Uh, there's a whole host of projects that uh, USRA investigates on behalf of the federal agencies and primarily uh, NASA. Victor Deal, thanks for being on Acquisition Talk. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate you having me. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.